0: Welcome back to another episode of John Solomon Reports. Once again, I'm your guest host, Daniel Payne. I'm a reporter at Just The News. and I'm filling in for my editor-in-chief, John Solomon, this week. I hope you've enjoyed my stint behind the microphone as much as I have. and It's been a lot of fun, and I look forward to joining you here again someday. As ever, it's been a busy news week, and you can find our great coverage on all the top stories of the day at Just The News, justthenews.com. We'd love for you to join us there. Uh, Certainly the biggest story of the past month has been the election. It's been a full month today, actually, since Election Day 2020. Uh, I'm sure to many of us it's felt like several months or years. It's been a long few weeks, folks. And I think most of us are all yearning for those happy years when an election was called just several hours after the the polls closed or into the early hours of the next morning. Um, That obviously hasn't happened this year, and it's not surprising that that's the case. This was an election like no other in US history. Literally, there's never been another election like it. Uh, We've never had an election in which so much of the vote was transmitted not by in-person voters in a polling station, but by absentee voters submitting ballots via mail. Uh, I believe believe the number is 65 million votes this year cast by mail. I I think that's right, and that's just staggering. Uh, I believe it's very nearly double what was cast by mail in 2016, so it's a huge number. Uh, so, you know, given that this is a largely untested strain in our system, it's, it's really fairly unsurprising that there's been weeks of controversy and contestation and challenges. Uh, I mean, it would be surprising if that wasn't the case, frankly. And we've been covering that every step of the way at Just the News. And I want to go into a bit into our coverage of the last few weeks. Um, And I'll say we're going to have an expert voice on here in a little bit uh, who's been doing exhaustive work over the last few weeks to gather and organize and tabulate a huge amount of data uh, related to possible malfeasance in this election. You'll want to stick around for that. It's a very interesting, very informative interview. Uh, But in the meantime, I'd just like to underscore a few things about media coverage in this environment over the past few weeks. A great many media companies have covered the last month of election news, uh, I want to say fairly poorly, in my professional opinion. Uh, There's been largely scant coverage on so many of the controversies and allegations that have arisen over the past four weeks. Um, Most of the coverage following the week of the election is focused on Joe Biden's putative victory and his efforts to assemble a cabinet and an administration. At Just the News, we've been covering these allegations thoroughly for the past month, and I think it's important to really explain why. For the, for those who just might not be familiar with how a media outlet runs its day-to-day operations, um, you know, journalists they can't cover any tip, just any tip, that comes across their desks. Obviously, we can't. Uh, ultimately, journalists have to pick and choose what's credible, what's newsworthy, what's worth the time and effort. Uh, those decisions are made at both the individual and institutional levels. Every outlet and every journalist has to do it. Now. We've chosen to report on so many of these election controversies and allegations and inconsistencies for, uh, I think, two key reasons. The first is the sheer number of them. There's just so many. Again, that's kind of unsurprising given that this election saw a truly unprecedented number of mail-in ballots submitted, which was just a largely untested feature of our system. Uh, But when you survey the landscape of the last month or so and see When you see the historically low mail-in ballot rejection rate compared to other years, Uh, when you see the over 14,000 ballots, I think it was, found in Virginia on a jump drive two days after the election that just uh, turned up on a jump drive, when you look at the frankly bizarre controversy over Dominion voting machine updates in Antrim County, Michigan, when you see several thousand ballots at least being found during the Georgia audit uh, when you see reports of multiple absentee ballots being sent to single occupants. And now this really did happen. Half a million incorrect absentee ballots applications being sent to state residents in Virginia. Um, All of that and so many other allegations and controversies, all of it taken in its totality is just kind of stunning. It raises flags and it the very least, it is very much the sort of thing that journalists are drawn to cover under normal circumstances. Um, in the second case, so much of what we reported on has actually been even more compelling than that mountain of controversies. And I'm referring specifically to affidavits. Uh, there have been so many affidavits filed in relation to the controversies surrounding this election that it would, it would be difficult to list them all here. I don't think we have the time to do that. Uh, we've seen them from data experts, analysts, poll watchers, election workers, postal workers, municipal workers, folks in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Nevada, numerous other states. The filings have alleged questionable handling of voting materials, potential ballot fraud, the breaking of election security protocol, potential mishandling of large numbers of ballots. These are not isolated filings. Uh, They're they're, they're happening all over the place. Um, They're specific and they're associated with named individuals. From a journalistic perspective, an affidavit is big news. It's much more consequential than a mere comment or remark. Um, An affidavit involves an on-the-record sworn statement given under penalty of perjury. If the people who give those statements are are found to be lying, deliberately lying, uh, they're open to prosecution for perjury, which is an incredibly serious crime and something you very much do not want to be prosecuted for. So... When as journalists, we we see these affidavits, so many of them, they catch our eye and we pursue them and report on them. Um, That's not to speak of whether or not the affidavits are truly indicative of voter fraud or malfeasance of any kind. As journalists, we can't normally make that sort of call as it's usually not black or white. Uh, That's for the courts to decide ultimately. But we're absolutely driven to report on these things because they're worth reporting on. And you as readers and as Americans and voters deserve to know such things. So I hope that gives you both a sense of why we do what we do at Just the News, and perhaps more importantly, it might give you a sense of what it is other media outlets haven't been covering and why. Um, It definitely raises the question as to why so many media outlets, at least major media outlets, have failed to cover so much of this highly controversial election so thoroughly. Um, We know they can do that when they deem it appropriate. We certainly saw extraordinarily heavily media coverage, of purported controversies of the 2016 election for weeks, months, sometimes even years after the fact. That we're not seeing the same level of scrutiny here with so much more controversy in front of us is puzzling, uh, to say the least. But of course, you are getting that coverage at Just the News. We are working hard to to cover every controversy and allegation that, uh, that comes across our desk that uh, looks credible and compelling and so we, we hope you've been enjoying that coverage and uh, you can certainly uh, look forward to more of it as it arises. As I said, coming up, we're going to have a terrific guest on here who's been doing a lot of excellent nuts and bolts data gathering work related to this election. I would urge you to stick around. Uh, I know you'll like to hear what he has to say and I think you'll walk away better informed because of it. We'll
1: be right back. Folks, everyone knows the next medical crisis is just around the corner. Whether it comes in the form of a pandemic or something much more mundane, like a tick bike, you and your family need to be prepared. That's what we learned from this last pandemic, right? That's where the Wellness Company comes in. You know the Wellness Company. We have their great doctors like Dr. Peter McCullough on all the time on our shows. The Wellness Company and their doctors are medical professionals that you can trust and the new medical emergency kits are the gold standard when it comes to keeping you safe and healthy, and most importantly, prepared. Be ready for anything. This medical emergency kit contains an assortment of life-saving medications, including Ivermectin and z The medical emergency kit provides a guidebook to aid in the safe use of all of these life-saving medications. So you know what you're doing. From anthrax to tick bites to COVID and even the bioweapon like the plague, the wellness company's medical emergency kit
0: All right, folks. Welcome back to John Solomon Reports. As before, I am your host, Daniel Payne, a reporter with Just the News. And as promised, I have here today with us. Joining us today is Matt Brainard. He is the director of the Voter Integrity Project, the former director of strategy for the Trump campaign, and current executive director of Look Ahead America. Matt, thank you so much for joining us here. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks so, for having me. The Voter Integrity Project has been doing a lot of incredibly important work in the weeks since the election. And um, I wonder if you could just give our listeners a, a kind of a broad overview of uh, why the project was formed and what, what its purpose is.
2: Yeah, it it was started, it's kind of a, what Bob Ross would call a happy accident, I think. I um, had some ideas in the aftermath of the election. Uh, about waste resolve, you know, whether or not there was, uh, voter fraud or illegal ballots cast in a way that I thought would be definitive because, uh, you know, in the day or two after the election, there were all kinds of crazy theories, things that I would consider hearsay or speculation. And I thought that, you know, I, I've got some skills here. I've got a pretty strong background in this area. I've been working, um, as, uh, an expert in voter data going all the way back to the 1990s when i started with the republican national committee's uh, political analysis department i spent about 10 years with the nation's premier election administration and redistricting firm election data services i've worked in uh campaigns all across the country my emphasis you know previously has, has often been in the area of voter targeting voter data development and you know i have a pretty intimate understanding of uh you know not how a bill is made but how a vote is made right all the way back to how voters register the different ways they vote and then the ways those votes get counted and tabulated this is stuff i've been intimately familiar with um gosh for it's going on 25 years now so i had some ideas that uh would potentially detect if there had been any kind of uh fraud you know of, of various types and i had written a brief memo and uh i sent it to uh names you would probably recognize, um, suggesting, hey, why don't you guys try and, and use this technique? Uh, again, because this was in the early days, like one or two days after the election. And I wasn't really getting anywhere with those responses. So I, um, I had a Twitter account. And I guess I had about 200 followers or so and just sort of post my ideas, just sort of out of frustration, I sort of outlined what um, what could be done. And uh, to my surprise, I just guess it was a matter of um, serendipity where somebody retweeted it and then someone else retweeted it. And within a very short time, people had demanded a a crowdfunding website to pay for this research. And um, initially, I I estimated the data cost for, you know, the initial version being like 100 grand or so. But within 24 hours of setting up the GoFundMe site, um, we had raised $220,000. And then GoFundMe shut the whole thing down, refunded everybody their money, which was uh, yeah fantastic, wow. a great, great moment in history. And then they, uh, they lied about why they did it. They told a journalist and we'll be following up with them on this because I think that we actually may have, uh, some adjudication ahead of us. Right. They said that we did it because we made false and misleading claims. Now, from the moment i started this you know and and started building the team and and getting it underway i while i do have my own political viewpoint i have my own candidates this election i really just want to resolve whether or not this was a clean election and even in the page where we set this up initially on gofundme we never said that you know we're out here to prove there was voter fraud or to to demonstrate it or we're gonna uh, flip this election with this investigation we're always about well Look, here's some techniques that could potentially detect problems. Right. Uh, let's let's run them. There, and the thing is about these experiments, historically, no one's ever done this. But you know, th- there's rarely ever been a level of a forensic analysis done after an election, especially by an outside third party. Part of the reason is because nobody's got the money to do it, and usually the margins are uh, so large or the race so insubstantial, it's not worthwhile to, right. you know expend all this effort, because basically it's a campaign level effort, um, what we had to engage in. It became very expensive. Anyway, our good friends at Give, Send, Go set up a page for us. Um, I can't recommend them enough. I can't rec- recommend their model enough of how they operate. Um, but very shortly we had much more money and we were sort of expanding the project the kind of tests and analyses we wanted to do i started growing the team at one point at my campaign headquarters here we had about eight people eight or nine in total yeah. working for us and we had a satellite office with more people working for us and we raised um i guess at five hundred ninety thousand dollars. i told people look stop giving us you stop giving us money or Uh, We don't need any money. We're not actively requesting it anymore because this fully funds the project. And I, I, from the very beginning, said, look, we're going to document all of our costs. I personally will not take a penny of the money raised through the crowdfunding site. And, uh, you know, we're actually today I'm going to be releasing the initial um, outlays and then hopefully getting somebody, you know, trustworthy in the media to review that all of these outlays were authentic to confirm with the bank and the vendors that everybody was paid and there were no uh, rebates paid to me on any of this. Uh, so that, that's, um, that's sort of how it got started. And we raised, um, you know, and, and even after saying that we've raised almost a hundred thousand dollars on top of that. And I've said, look, if we, if any money we have extra, if somebody needs their money back, we'll give it to them. So refunds and beyond that, the uh, funds will go to C uh, C3 that's dedicated to voter registration and fighting voter fraud. And we'll be rolling that out in a couple of weeks with what, you know, I think we should have a little bit of a surplus after this. Um, so, uh. I guess we should talk about maybe the, the techniques that we ran, huh? Sure, go right ahead. Sure. So, again, because no one had done this before, we didn't know what would find something and what wouldn't. I, I wouldn't know what would be fruitful and uh, what would have been, you know, in retrospect, a waste of money. But you never know until you spend the money. It's You never know there are a bunch of creepy crawlies under that rock in the swamp until you pick the rock up. you right. got to pick the rock up. And uh, you know, overall, we've ended up spending about six hundred thousand dollars, about just shy of two hundred k on data and data enhancements, and around a four hundred k on phone programs. Right. Uh, Basically, calls. We had three. We have three call centers that we had fired up um, at one point, all concurrently uh, reaching out to voters. So going back to the beginning, though, a lot of others had you know speculative things. They got charts or mathematical theories. I wanted names. And phone numbers and addresses and declarations signed and affidavits in mass quantities of numbers because that's the only thing that really would make a difference in the election. Right. Because you know, while their margins were small, there weren't like a couple hundred. You know, this the smallest margin I think was uh, uh, several thousand. Right. So um, we first started reaching out to people um, via phones who had requested an absentee ballot but not returned it based on the state's data. We also reached out to people who were um, previously unlikely voters, folks who had not um, voted in a while, if ever, and cast a ballot all of a sudden. And then we reached out to people who had moved recently, and despite that move, had still cast a ballot. Um, So in the first case of the people who had not returned absentee ballots, the first thing we wanted to know was... Did they request that ballot in the first place because in all the states except for nevada you had to make a uh, request to the state for that you could not somebody could not do that in your name and what we found was quite surprising because among the population of those who did not return the absentee ballot we found many many a high percentage across the board never requested it i think the highest percentage we found was in arizona 44 percent of those people never requested the absentee ballot wow now, there's been a lot of talk about ballot stuffing and witness and hearsay and uh, uh, accounts of uh, weird behavior of voting centers. But the problem with that type of voter fraud is that you you should ideally have to have to balance, quote unquote, balance the books. That means as many people had to be marked as having shown up and voted right. as ballots there are, or else it's kind of, I think, evidence of an invalid election. Um, so what you've got to do if you were, in theory, not making an allegation, but in theory, you'd have to – Basically vote in other people's names, people who are not likely to have voted before or for any other reason, or you do cast ballots in other people's names and then they show up to vote on election day or they try to do it by mail and they don't know what's working or why they're told they've already voted and they get a provisional ballot, etc cetera. Um, so we found a lot of those people had, in fact – Not requested absentee ballots. And in one state, uh, we were working with the legal team and they wanted to ask the question more broadly. They wanted to know, they just wanted us to call the entire universe of people who had voted in the election via absentee and just ask all of them in Michigan, of a population of about 3.3 million uh, male voters, uh, M A I L, um, did you request that absentee ballot? And we found that about 13% of them did not, which is remarkable because it's not, the laws are pretty strict and straightforward and uh, and that was the case, you know, again we found this in state after state. Right. We also found among the people who said they did request it, who didn't return it, a substantial number of them actually said, yes, I did return it. So that, ask another question, what happened to those ballots? Why weren't they counted? We also, in the other populations where, again, we looked at folks who had not voted in a while, wherever uh, or, or those who had moved, we found people saying that, no, I did not cast a ballot even though the state said they did. Right. And it was always you know, a, a mail ballot. One of the most famous examples was somebody we didn't even really talk to. We just left a voicemail, a gentleman named Nashawn Garrett, uh, who was registered to vote in Arizona but left to go to Tennessee to become an Olympic wrestler. He's very good at it. Um, he got our voice message just saying, hey, you may be the victim of voter fraud. He looked up his own record and found that not only had he um, been marked as having voted, but he was marked as signature verified. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and uh, he actually ended up. I, 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 somebody told me, "Hey, your program is on uh, Laura Ingram's show on Fox News." I said, "What? I, I don't know what you're talking about. No one's talked to me about it." And I go on, and they play the voice message we left him, <laughs> and they play the, and then they interview him. And honestly, you know, I'm glad they did that. I'd be more than happy to talk to Laura about it more. But uh, I'm actually he, he's the better guest because he's the actual witness, and I believe he's signing an affidavit, and he'll be. Uh, Testifying at some kind of hearing or something like that and but we found a lot of people like that and uh, We have audio recordings of them in many cases We were able to get them to sign declarations and they've also I think signed affidavits in some cases Um, So that's the kind of analysis we did with the call center, but we also did analysis on our own using um, additional data sources so one of the um, best ways to uh, find illegal ballots um, historically because my team was working on this basically i rebuilt the team that i had um built uh, for the trump campaign for data and strategy in uh, 2016 so i brought the same people on um, who know this stuff in fact one of the people that i brought on i was also on a team that i built at the republican national committee in 1997. okay so we've been doing this for a long time um, and we know all the tricks and one thing we looked at was residency because a lot of people and we heard we had anecdotal evidence of this where they where they live now they don't think their vote really matters but they have the opportunity to vote in a state where they think it does and they take that opportunity even though it's not legal even though they're not um, they no longer meet the residency requirement for any number of reasons right and we were able to detect this with two methods that were somewhat limited Um, one is that we bounced up uh, the voter lists against the ncoa database now I'm getting into the weeds here. But whenever you move, you fill out the little card to, uh, to get your mail forwarded, Right. Because, you, right. I've done that many times. M- many, most people have. Yeah. Well, that actually goes into a database. And the Postal Service makes banks selling that. It's very expensive. Uh, so we were able to, uh, one of our vendors who has a license to access that, um, held our data, you know, matched our data up against it. And we found a lot of people who have moved out of state prior to the election that's a pretty good indicator that you've lost residency, right? The other method we used was we built a national voter file, very expensive. Um, and we, uh, looked for people who had registered to vote in another state in the state we were examining at a subsequent date. So they registered, you know, in 2015 in Georgia, but then we found them registering 2018 in South Carolina and they cast a ballot in Georgia. That's an illegal ballot. Yep. Um, clearly so those two groups you know you combine them together and we got a substantial number now we miss a lot of people with that method one of the challenges and uh with this and no this is a podcast format so we are going to go in the weeds here unless unless, (laughs) do you object to getting a little bit of the weeds a little bit no 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 not at all i'm the weeds can grow as much as they want here i'm so glad i love this format so much it's it's the superior format of media if if anybody's listening has any doubts um (laughs) but i digress but you can do that it's a podcast so one of the challenges of uh voter data that comes from states is that it's often incomplete now it's incomplete for two reasons one reason is because it's actually incomplete on the state side they're missing stuff that they should have the other reason it's incomplete is because they in releasing the data in an attempt to protect people's privacy suppress certain pieces of data right so in many cases states will release um voter lists with either wildly inaccurate dates of birth or uh, partial dates of birth or no dates of birth right. and in and sometimes though they do release it with fairly accurate dates of birth but even then there's still issues where um, uh, they didn't have dates of birth for certain people so it just defaults to something ridiculous like 1900 January 1st which is why you get you know these people running around with reports saying hey there's all these under 20 year old people on the roll. surely right. they're dead <laughs> and these votes were cast the name of it the... no that's not well that's what happens when amateurs try to do this analysis, and we've got a lot of that going on. It's kind of why I decided you know, I was going to step forward and, and do it, because it's kind of my background and the background of the people on my team. So what uh, we had to do was to get those dates of birth on the voter data commercially enhanced. And even then, it's still not perfect. And we actually, unless we can get a good match, unless we have a high degree of confidence in the date of birth, uh, we're not even going to try to match it. Because once you decide, I'm going to do matches without complete dates of birth, you get a ton of false positives. That's why you actually have these people running around saying there are thousands of dead people that cast ballots or thousands of felons. Um, hillbillies and the African American community, believe it or not, do not win any awards for creativity in naming their children. So you find a lot of people with the same names, even if you do just a match on year, one's your name, same state, um, one's in prison, not allowed to vote, but the other is voted, and de- or one is dead and the other is not. Um, so you get a lot of false positives. So we only did this type of analysis on with a very tight match, right. and uh, because again, we the state has all kinds of tools to do this better than us. They do have complete dates of birth. They actually have other tools like uh, driver's licenses. You get a driver's license in another state, and that you're no longer a resident. This, we don't have access to driver's license data and all kinds of other information that could establish whether or not somebody is a resident or not. But right. using our sort of third-party poor man's hacker, hacking workaround, um, <laughs> we did have a, a, thousands and thousands and thousands of people in these categories that we're fairly confident of. And in the process of it, we also de- we also determined a small population of people who were double voters. But even that is limited too because in addition to having the issue with the dates of birth. Not just the dates of birth in the states we're looking at, but also the dates of birth in all the other states we're comparing to find, you know, people who have registered twice and also voted twice. At the point in time we did this analysis, which is still the case now, most states have only released, if at all, their early and absentee voters. Right. Election day voters, typically those, for some states, those don't come out for a month or longer, believe it or not. So yeah,
0: it took a while this time around, certainly.
2: Yeah, and in some cases still not available. In some cases, only available behind a very expensive fee. I think uh, Michigan's like twelve thousand dollars. <laughs> well, well, you know, in Alabama, in fact, is uh, I think they still charge a penny per name, which you know, in a state with about 30, uh, 3 million voters or more, that's a thirty thousand dollar file. Yeah, it's a and, little bit. Uh, yeah, it is. So all of these d- despite all of that, we were able to identify with great confidence the number of people who've done that. Now, in the process of this, we actually discovered other things that we weren't looking for but are clear evidences a uh, clear evidence of voter fraud um, and I yeah I use in this these cases I use it clearly these are evidence of voter fraud um, in one case uh, thousands of votes in uh, Pennsylvania Georgia Michigan um, individuals would register to vote with their residents as a at a postal facility now postal facility either owned or released by the post office at a FedEx shop or UPS stop or standard post office you're not allowed to list that as your residence. Um, you have to list where you actually live. And, uh, you know, if you're homeless, you've, you can still list the homeless shelter, the area, you know, the general area where you are, where you can get mail to church or something like that. Um, so there's nobody actually really lives inside a PO box, but what was also quite nefarious about it is that they didn't register at a quote unquote PO box. They listed those PO boxes as apartments and suites and uh unit numbers and so it's there's an intent to deceive very clear there and they also overwhelmingly voted by mail because in the general population yeah a lot of people especially this time voted by mail but a lot of them voted in in person almost none of the people who were registered this way in these states voted in person they all voted by by mail right and whether these people are real or not whether they're a, a Whatever it is, those were those ballots should not have been counted, and those registrations should be scrubbed from the list. Something else we discovered, which was unique to Wisconsin, or was the uh, indefinitely confined. Um, oh right. Now, right. So, there in that state, um, it's pretty hard to get an absentee ballot, um, particularly without having identification or showing identification. But there's one exception because, uh, despite their attempts to cracked down on when they controlled the government there republicans had a soft spot for grannies ill-advised <laughs> i would say uh so that folks in nursing homes or those who are better rated and could vote and but that's the only way you can now get an absentee ballot without showing an id or actually even any proof that you're indefinitely confined is to check the indefinitely combined box right what we had in Georgia, in wisconsin where was even one county clerk posted on social media encouraging people to just request a ballot under that status that was a, that illegal activity by them, prima facie, and the state supreme court ordered them to remove um, that social media post. I believe that was Dane's County, um, and just so you know, and the audience knows, COVID was is not a justification for indefinitely confined status, right? Because you know, on it, it just isn't. Um, so in years past, um, if you look at this election, the, the people who voted in the uh, this election in Wisconsin under indefinitely confined status. You look back a few years, you can see what year they initially claimed that status. So you go back a couple of years, you know, in, in 2011 or 12 or 13, it's just a couple hundred. Sometimes there's a, a thousand or so or a couple thousand. Um, this time that number spiked to about 170,000. Right. And our team built, um, basically, we took a random sample of that and we found that, of those who we could identify a social media profile, 44% of them were clearly not indefinitely confined. It was a phony claim of that status. And, you know, it's not just that, you know, you. I guess people claimed an illegal status to cast a ballot. They would have been able to cast anyway. Well, sure, that's part of it. But remember, to request a status, you didn't have to even show an ID. Right. Right. So.
0: Yeah, I remember and I uh, believe that um, – the WEC, the Wisconsin Elections Commission, made that pretty clear that that was uh, uh, pretty well posted on their their uh, election materials online, that this was not a requirement, that voter ID was not necessary to to request that status.
2: Right. Nor was proof that
0: you actually are indefinitely confined. Right. And
2: it sort of was up to the clerks to make a determination. I don't know how they can do that. Um, but, you know, that and, and these other cases have illustrated a serious problem with the lack of the ability to authenticate an absentee ballot and the only way i think the country can have any confidence in elections moving forward or somewhat more confidence there's a lot of things they can do but we can no longer we cannot have unauthenticated um absentee ballots and it's very to authenticate them requires something i think more than a signature i think um i think the only way to really do it is fingerprints because i have a cell phone i have i actually still use a samsung galaxy s5 i love it because it does things that modern phones don't do but it's you pretty must old love it. but, yeah. <laughs> yeah or, or they up the s20 or S, on january s21 is coming out um, yeah but but if the little thing on it despite how old it is i can unlock it if i want to with my fingerprint yeah and think thing about fingerprints is that a machine can very quickly make a comparison when you know and it's very cheap to do them too because I, I applied for a, a concealed carry permit. Um, one of the places was uh, Utah, and I had a sheet and I put all ten of my fingerprints on it. Yeah. Um, it, it would be it would be very easy. and, I think important for a state when they send out that absentee ballot in that middle envelope with where the affidavit goes. Right. Or the witness statement or whatever. They should send out a little little kit to just get your thumbprint right on that, and then obviously you know they have to have one to check it against. Right. But that you can just a machine can sort through that and very quickly either verify whether or not you, you know, your name matches the print um, or not. It's very easy and simple. And I think a great way to, you know, if we're going to, you know, the the alternative, I think, is just to get rid of absentee ballot voting, which some other third world countries where they have no confidence in the election systems, they don't do that there for a very good reason. And it's a reason that even The New York Times believed was significant, you know. one of the things I like to cite is that 12 years ago, they—but this is back when Republicans dominated mail voting, so obviously that's why they were writing the article. They said that we were reaching a point where um, uh, there were so many uh, uh, mail-in ballots, so many problems and potential for fraud that there there have been many races, many elections, where we are not certain who the deserved winner is. Right. And the conclusion of my research project, of the Voter Integrity Project, is based on our analyses of Wisconsin, Georgia and Arizona. Um we can't say with confidence. The nation cannot be confident that Joe Biden is the deserved winner because the number of illegal ballots based on our analysis until yeah. it's been refuted or revised yeah. surpasses the margin of victory in those states and uh he's you know it, it he would not be I think um uh he may have won. He may not have won. It's right. we cannot tell and that's uh it's that's a problem.
0: Yeah, certainly, uh, uh, yeah, like you said, uh, what we're after here is uh, is, is not so much a, a winner or loser from one side or the other, but uh, a desire to ensure that this election has been clean and fair and and free from fraud on the level that that might swing election one way or the other. Uh, real quick, can you tell me with with all of that a uh, uh, considerable amount of data that you gathered and the the analyses you performed? Uh, how how is this uh, data being used? Is it being used in any of the litig- litigation? Um, in the various uh, battleground states. And, and I believe also that, um, and I don't know what extent you can talk about this, but that the FBI has also proactively contacted you about that. So uh, give a quick rundown of um, of how that data is being applied in the weeks after the election.
2: Well, I have been very busy uh, filling out declarations and affidavits for cases, um, I think in I think all but maybe one of the states where we've developed data, and we, in all of the states we have been sharing data and having conversations with um, some of the uh, the presidents' attorneys, uh, their legal teams, and some of the um, uh, legal groups that are working in parallel or independently. Because right now there are based there are three and maybe more. There are three groups that have actually filed suits. There, to my knowledge one or two more that are planning to do so in different angles. But the three groups are the president's campaign team. Then you have Sidney Powell, and then you have the Amistad group. Right. Um, and uh, Amistad's the one that um, I have found to be uh, very well organized, very competent, very um, uh, on the ball. Like, uh, like they, they've set up teams for each of the different states. Right. And I have worked with those teams um, intimately, providing them what they need. And they have a central team that sort of – they even set up like – because a lot of the research we've done is um, similar for different states. It's almost just a matter of plugging in different numbers, you know, how many found in each different category for each different state. They built a template for my declarations. Right. And – put in a lot of hours and, and have asked for additional analyses for different states. They're actually the ones that sent me back in the field, into the field and funded the supplemental uh, research into the entire a- absentee universe in Michigan. So they've been very impressive. Um, and I think it's part of the uh, Thomas More Society and it's a, right. a good group of lawyers who've, um, for the most part, I think right, just done a fantastic job. I've worked with the president's legal team, um, uh, in several different states, um, uh, I believe that yesterday I uh, I had an affidavit filed with a bunch of exhibits. I think my affidavit was about 500 pages long um, <laughs> because it included the actual names of people, names and voter records of these folks who had uh, uh, potentially cast illegal ballots. Right. Um, so but my work is my work has gone into many cases in fact with in one case in particular i think um... Can't remember what state it is, but somebody wrote an analysis based on my data and that went into the case. And I think that was uh with one of Sydney Powell's lawsuits. So I'm actually was my I did not have an affidavit or declaration there, but somebody did an analysis on my data and that went in there. Right. Um so there's all kinds of ways it's getting into. Um we're gonna be sharing all of this with all of the uh, with governor, secretary of state and attorney general of all states and I think maybe tomorrow I'll be dropping FedEx's Uh, envelopes to all the states with all this data. And, you know, I did tweet that uh, the FBI has reached out for data. And all I'm going to say is we're going to completely cooperate. And I don't have anything more to say about that. Great.
0: Great. That is uh, well, certainly, I think uh, uh, if and when we know of uh, uh, the ultimate integrity of this election and, um, uh, you know, how much fraud there was uh, and. uh how big of an impact it had it will be doing no small part to your work so doing excellent work and we we thank you for that and uh we thank you for coming on here and sharing this with us and uh hope you keep us posted
2: I will do it's good talking to you we'll we'll uh, talk again
0: thank you matt take care now
1: Bye bye
0: All right, folks, I hope you found that interview with Mr. Brainard uh, informative and enlightening. And I know that you'll uh, uh, be keeping up with our coverage on his work and everything he's finding. You can find him on Twitter at Matt Brainard, M A T T B R A Y N A R D. Uh, you can also find him on Gab at the same handle, and then on Parler at Mbrainers. So be sure to look him up there and follow all the great work he's doing. Uh, I thank you so much for, for joining me during this week. As, uh, my uh, stint is host of John Solomon Reports, and um, John will be back with you next week, and I hope to see you all again here someday soon. Take care.